I'd like for you to turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Luke. And I'm reading verse, verses 13 through 15. And you may be saying, he's, he's done it now. He's, he's flipped out. He's, he did that last Sunday. Same um, text. Last Sunday I dealt with the story of the man who uh, tore down barns and built greater and talked about the greed of that. Today I want to talk about the occasion of that story. And it begins in verse 13 like this. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. With a bag of wild oats thrown over his shoulder, a young man ran away to find life in the bright lights. He just kind of drifted from town to town and from job to job, working just enough to support a regime of wine, women, and song. So preoccupied was he with the good life that he forgot, he didn't even think about notifying his family, his people back there where he was or what he was doing. And one day by the chanciest of, of circumstances, coincidence, he ran into an old buddy from back home he had gone to school with. He was doing a stint in the occupation army. And they just sat around and chatted for a while about back, way back when. And then he learned his father was dead. After the first searing pains of grief had kind of cooled to a numbing sorrow, he remembered the inheritance. He was richer than he thought. Some of that estate belonged to him. And so he packed his bags and he headed home to get what was his. But when he got there, his older brother had other things in mind. And so he said to him, No, you wanted out, you got out. You made your bed, now lie in it. This estate belongs to me, all of it. Angry to the point of murder, he storms out of the house, knowing that he has been cheated, he's going to get redress. And one day he just kind of joins a crowd that's farming around an itinerant teacher from of all places, Nazareth. He's talking about unpardonable sin and the worth of the individual, but this man hears nothing he said, not a word of it. He's just obsessed with his problem. And he holds back, although it took a great deal of effort, until the master pauses for a drink of water. And in that slit of silence, he seizes the opportunity. And he says loudly, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. 
And every head snaps around in response. Jesus can't go on. His train of thought is broken and the concentration of the crowd has been disturbed. And seizing the moment as an opportunity, Jesus faces the young man and levels him with a question. Son, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And then he drifts into this marvelous discourse on covetousness. This, or something like this, became the occasion of this story. And immediately we have an emotional uh, involvement in it. There are some of us who have sided with the boy, just sure he's been cheated. We'd render him the verdict. Some of us are square with that older brother. We wouldn't give him a dime. Some of us are angry that Jesus was, dis was disturbed in his message. And some of you are confused about Jesus' response. But the issue this morning is this. Why did Jesus not get involved in this event? And if we can find the answer to that, I submit to you, we can find some keys to life. There are several possibilities, several answers. First, Jesus refused to pronounce on this issue because that was not his mission, his purpose. Now it was a legitimate request and he could have rendered a perfectly correct verdict. He not only knew men's actions, he knew the motive of their actions and he was totally honest and fair. There was not a biased bone in him. And he was a perfect judge. He could have pronounced on the issue. But way back somewhere, Jesus understood that he was there on mission. And that he was there on the basis of a divine appointment and a divine intention, and that his purpose and mission was unique to any other. Now, it didn't mean that Jesus was just kind of saying, no, I don't do windows, you know, or that he just kind of shrugged the responsibility off with a shrug saying, no, that's not my job. It was that he understood that his purpose was unique and singular. Now, when he understood that he was Messiah, I don't know. I don't know when he came to the realization of that. I do know that when he was 12 years old, when he was in the temple, his parents came rushing back to find him, and they were greatly disturbed. They thought they had lost him. And he said to them, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? He knew that he was there on purpose. And he could have taken, it would have taken perhaps all of his ministry just settling family disputes. Can you imagine how many people would have come rushing to Jesus to get his decision on a family dispute? That was not his purpose. That was not his mission. And nobody would lay another role on him, not even a good one. I heard the story about a bloodhound that started the, in pursuit of a magnificent stag. They thundered through the woods with the dog in hot pursuit. And a fox crossed the path of the hound and he turned and began to chase the fox. And then a rabbit crossed the path 
And he turned and began to chase the rabbit. May have been the origin of what you say about some <clears throat> preachers or teachers chasing rabbits. And as he chased the rabbit, a field mouse ran across the path and he began to chase the field mouse until the field mouse darted into a little hole in the ground and he came to a grinding stop. And what began as the magnificent pursuit of a marvelous stag ended up with a dog standing guard over a mouse hole. One of the greatest days of your life will be the day you discover your purpose for life. One of the keys to living will be the key that you find when you understand the business that you're on in this earth and why God has placed you here and you make a commitment to that purpose so that nothing diverts you from it. It's what Gordon MacDonald calls living like called people. And he said there are some people who go through life just kind of drifting aimlessly along like this young man. And there are some who are driven, he said, in pursuit, driven by desires of prosperity and power like the man who follows in the story. And then he said there are some who live called lives. And he uses John the Baptist as an example. He said there are four characteristics of living as one who is called of God. First, they have a sense of stewardship. They understand they're here just to manage what somebody else owns. Secondly, they have a deep sense of their own identity. They know who they are. John the Baptist kept saying, I'm not Messiah, said MacDonald. One of the keys to knowing who you are is knowing who you're not. For what you cannot do, is as much a part of your uniqueness as what you can do. Third, they have an unwavering sense of purpose. This is what I'm about in the world and nothing can divert me. And they have an unswerving commitment. Nothing can stop me. And so Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he put his face toward Jerusalem and he didn't turn away. Somebody said, that Jesus was just as spiritual when he spat upon the ground and made clay for the blind man's eyes as he was when he stilled the storm because he was doing what the Father wanted him to do. That's the key to this whole thing. What does the Father want you to do? And so Jesus could have called back and said, No, I'm not an arbiter. I'm here on mission, and that's not it. Second, he refused to pronounce on this matter, on this problem, because he trusted justice, listen to me, he trusted justice to be determined by the institutions of society. He trusted the institutions of society to determine justice. Now, it would be a grievous error to think that Jesus was indifferent to, to, to injustice. He hated it when somebody did a number on somebody else. And a part of the fury of Jesus was directed to people who were guilty of injustice. And it would be a mistake to think that Jesus was so oriented with spiritual things that the problems of this young man's life 
were beneath him. It wasn't that he was saying, like a, somebody with his head in the clouds, I, you know, you got your secular and you got your spiritual, and I'm a holy man. Don't interrupt me with matters mundane. It wasn't that at all. It was that he had come to trust the matters of justice to the forces and the institutions of history. One of the most amazing things I've discovered when I've read Scripture is how much, how great a respect the Bible has for the government. You read the book of Romans and the Apostle Paul calls the government, the courts, as being ordained of God and those who carry out their procedures as ministers of God. And you turn to the epistle of Peter and you say, and, and he says, even if you have a brutal, unjust slave master, you're to be obedient to him and do your best work there. I'm amazed at how much respect the government is given by Scripture. And I want you to hear me. Jesus refused to preempt the prerogatives of the state. Now I know there's a tendency in our time of isolationism and the church and the Christian community has a, has a terrible tendency to withdraw to the four walls behind stained glass to comfortable pews and talk to one another and leave the events, the, the affairs, of, 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 of life to somebody else. I know that one of the greatest blights on the church has been our tendency uh, with a kind of an indifference, withdrawal from encountering the world. But let me tell you something, it is also true that sometimes the church sticks its nose where the nose of the church should never be. And that's why what Jesus is warning against, and I don't want to be misunderstood, but I want to say it with a great amount of conviction. I don't believe that it is either the right or the responsibility of the church to become the Supreme Court in this country. He leaves that up to the forces and the institutions of the state. Third, he refused to pronounce on this because it just wasn't his way of doing things. That is, it wasn't his way to join with another against a third party. He just was not going to be a part of a double team. Reggie White is one of the greatest pass rushers in the National Football League. He plays in for the Philadelphia Eagles. He always gets double teamed. Now for you who are not couch potatoes, a double team is when, a, when, you, when he's playing, you know, when he's uh, playing against a team and, and they have not just the person across from him block him, you know, the sign blocker, but they have these blocking schemes so that another person can leave his man and come down and help out, you know, a double team. And so Reggie White, poor Reggie, gets double teamed and triple teamed in every game he plays. Jesus would not join a double team. He was asked to do that in the house of Bethany, of Mary and Martha. And Mary loved to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him talk. Martha was busy in the kitchen. 
And she was getting all this stuff ready and she was so disturbed that Mary wasn't giving her any help. And so she comes to him and says to Jesus, tell my sister to get out of here, get out of there and get in here and help me. He refused to be a part of that double team. Watch carefully. What this man wanted was not a judgment. He wanted a decision against his brother. What he was looking for was somebody to join him against his brother. Because the laws regarding inheritance were clear as crystal. They had been established since the book of Deuteronomy. There was no question about what to do about an inheritance. He wasn't looking for somebody to make a decision here. He was looking for somebody to join him in the double team. A great deal of controversy swirls in this town, in the religious community. And somebody asked me, Pastor, what is your position? I'm going to say this, and that's all I'm going to say. My position is a position that every Christian in this church ought to assume, I believe. And it's this. God has not called us to double-team anybody, to pass judgment, or to become an arbiter. What we are called to do is to be compassionate people who are there for anybody who is hurting. Do you agree with that? For when we come to Jesus, we come never as complainants, We come to Him as confessors. So that when you come to Jesus about the sin of your brother or sister, He deals with your sin. Lord, do something about my child who is rebellious. And the Lord says, are you sure you're living an exemplary life as a parent? Lord, do something about my wife. She nags me all the time. And he says, are you sure you're a loving husband? Lord, would you speak to my boss? He's not a good boss. He says, are you sure you're doing a good job at work? For the kind of spirit that Jesus always blesses is the kind of spirit that cries, Lord, is it I? One of the most remarkable things about the upper room experience was that when Jesus said, some of you, one of you is going to betray me, nobody double teamed Simon Peter and said, ah, I knew it. The guy's got a big mouth. And nobody double teamed Judas and said, ah, I thought it all along. I've watched this man handle the purse. He's a thief. He'll do anything for money. But what happened was that everybody began to cry out of the spirit of submission that God will honor. Lord, is it I? He refused to pronounce on this because that just isn't the way to do it. Finally, he refused to pronounce on this Because both of these boys were wrong. Both of them were guilty of the sin of covetousness. 
Oh, how much greed, how much grief greed has caused. Now you say, well, how do you know that both of these men were guilty of covetousness? Well, why do you think Jesus went right into the story about covetousness? That's the way he did things. He seized on an opportunity. He was out talking one day and birds flew over. He said, oh yeah, see those birds? They don't put up stuff in barns and the Father takes care of them. And they were walking along one day and he saw some little flowers and he said, see this little flower? Solomon is not, in all his glory, is not arrayed like one of them. Your Father is, does this. And so when these boys came up, when this boy came up to him and began to talk about this controversy that was raging in that family, Jesus seized the opportunity to teach that there is no limit to human grief, to the human grief that being unable to control greed causes. Now I know it's not possible, are you hearing me? I know it's not possible to ever live in a society where everybody does everything because of love. But when you live in a society where nobody does anything except for money, we're in trouble. Now I don't say many profound things. I need to say that again because that's pretty profound according to my measurement of profundity. You'll never live in a society where everybody does everything because of love. But when you live in a society where nobody will do anything unless they get paid for it, we're in big trouble. Where are the people who are not consumed with what is theirs? I read about a French entomologist that I'm through. His name is Henri Fabre. You gotta hear this little story. He talks about a creature, an entomologist is a bug studier. He talks about a creature named a philanthus. Now a philanthus is a bee-eating wasp. Get this picture. A bee-eating wasp called a philanthus. And the way it kills its prey is it squeezes it to death. And just hearing about this philanthus make your hair crawl because it squeezes the bee-eating wasp, then licks the honey off of the wasp, off of the bee's tongue while it's dying. All right, you get, you get that picture. That'll... <laughs> Yeah, you got this, you got this wasp, he's squeezing this bee till his tongue sticks out, and then he licks the honey off of it while it dies. Enter a third insect called a mantis. Now you got three insects. Listen to what he says. The bandit was rifled by another bandit. The mantis comes and grabs the philantus. You, am I, am I, I want you, you getting it? Yeah, okay. 
here, here, here it is. Here, here's the awful detail. Watch. While the mantis held her transfixed, that is, the philantis, while the mantis held her transfixed under the points of the double saw and was already munching her belly. Well, you got the, you got the mantis eating the belly of the philanthus who has caught the bee. The, 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 the bee. <laughs> if we get through this, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> he says, while he has her transfixed under the points of the double saw and is already munching her belly, the wasp continued to lick the honey of the bee unable to relinquish the delicious food even amid the terrors of death. What a picture. A mantis killing a philantus, and while the philantus is dying, still licks the honey off of its prey. And when I think about that, I think about a society that consumes itself with its own greed. And Jesus said, I'm not going to pass judgment on either one of you. What I am going to do is to tell you this. You're both in big trouble if you can't come to the place where you give your life in love. And that's what I tell you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and adore you. We lay our lives before you. Be glorified in all the earth. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to understand that our mission, our purpose in life is to give our life to Thee for others. Oh, help us to see that our purpose in life, our mission in life, is not to be served, but to serve and to give our life for others. And where we're not, may we never never be satisfied. For I pray in Jesus' name. A spirit of prayer. Now look, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in a moment when we stand for invitation. Those of you who would like to come and be saved, the greatest moment in a person's life is that crisis moment when he encounters Jesus Christ in faith. If you've never trusted Him for your salvation, you'll need to come today. Perhaps you've done that in the past. You want to come and publicly declare that faith to be baptized tonight. I want to ask you to get up out of your seat and come and put your life here, this fellowship. Serve the Lord with us here. In a spirit of unity and oneness, love, service. Maybe you need to come today to say, I want, a, I want a deeper relationship than I have. Perhaps it 
super summer. You made some decisions. You'll need to, you'll want to make before your family, your church family. Whatever God leads you to do is our prayer you'll do. Out of the balcony, as soon as we stand, you need to start coming. And we'll be singing through some invitation words. We pray that you'll come while we stand to sing.